This morning, we are beginning a new series, which I am super excited about. In our tradition as Churches of Christ, we started as a unity movement. We wanted to be a church that broke down a lot of denominational barriers and bring people together because, in truth, there really is only one church, the universal church of God. And whenever we were trying to break down denominational barriers, we were trying to sort of construct with this blueprint-oriented mindset what the right way to do church was. And what that made us do is focus on books like Acts and the letters of Paul, basically everything after the Gospels. That was where we wanted to put our time if we were trying to find out the right way to do church, the right way to be church. For example, I think in my middle school and high school years growing up, in my Sunday school classes, I think I had the book of Acts taught to me three times. And I think I maybe had a class on Jesus or a gospel maybe once or twice. Now, I could be wrong about that, but from my understanding and talking with other people in our tradition, that's not so unheard of. There, there's been more of an emphasis on Acts and the letters of Paul, but as I've heard said before, if you preach the church, you get legalism. If you preach Jesus, you just might get the church. Our model and blueprint is after Jesus. Really what you could argue is that all of Paul's letters, really the book of Acts, what it's doing is trying to figure out what Christ's likeness looks like in their specific culture. And a quote from John Mark Hicks, Hicks up at Lipscomb, he wrote this book called Searching for the Pattern. And his argument is that Jesus is the pattern. Jesus is the pattern that we are to model our lives after. The earliest Christians, they read scripture through the lens of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about as people read the law, they're reading with a veil over their face, and it's not until after Jesus that that veil is removed. Jesus is the full revelation of God, and as his followers, we must look to his example before anything else. And so, though I said that we're ending our series, Who I Am, we're really continuing it, but Jesus is the focal point. And that being said, today, we're beginning a study on the book of Luke, called the Upside Down Kingdom. Luke's gospel is one of my absolute favorites, if not my favorite, because the stuff that's distinct about Luke is really close to me. I, I love that stuff. Also, it has a sequel, so that provides great sermon material for the future as well. But this is called the Upside Down Kingdom because Jesus really came to flip this world upside down. And I don't know how well you can see the graphic up there, but I have, uh, my wife made this and it's wonderful, but it's a table that's flipped upside down in like the money changers idea whenever Jesus was angry in the temple because that's a very literal example of Jesus flipping things upside down, right? But really it's a metaphor for what Jesus came to do here on earth. The way that we have done things in the past isn't good enough and God's way is better. And I had Tracy Grimes I'm gonna bring this up here because it's fantastic. Uh, she made this wonderful art piece of Jesus. I, I kind of gave her an idea for the vision, but she made it look way better than what I even thought it could possibly look like, but um, of him basically walking away from the scene of flipping everything upside down. 
And we're going to get to this story a little bit later in this series. But really, this is just a metaphor for what Jesus came to do in this upside-down kingdom. Because what we have done on this earth has caused more and more damage to God's good world. But Jesus' mission is one of bringing heaven to earth. And because of that, his way of doing things is completely different than the way that we often do things. It's often way harder, but always better. And if Jesus' ministry at some point, if this series at some point is not offensive to you or challenging to you, then you are either perfect, which I'm sure that's not the case, or we're not really understanding what Jesus came to do. Because this is convicting for me. I don't know how you can read Luke and not feel cut to the heart. Jesus didn't come to the world so that we could just keep doing what we're doing. He came to heal the world. In fact, as the wonderful now past author James Cone suggests, Luke 4 really demonstrates what Jesus' ministry and what the book of Luke is all about. And this is from one of the earliest moments in his ministry in his hometown preaching. In Luke 4, verse 16, it says this. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a mic drop moment, right? Just like, I just imagine everyone was just like, what? What just happened, right? This is like the manifesto of Jesus. Making the poor rich, and not in the way that you would think. Making the prisoners and the oppressed free. Making the blind see he came to flip this world upside down and flip it, he did. So each week, we're gonna be looking at how Jesus took our way of doing something and then flipped it for the better. In this series, we're continuing to dive deep on what it means for us as a church to be a church that loves God, serves others, and shares Jesus all through this gospel. One of the most interesting things for me is talking with other people about what they would have done if they were not currently doing the thing that they were doing. So talking with someone who is like, yeah, I'm an accountant, but I tried to make it in professional wrestling. What? <laughs> yeah, I was the undertaker. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, mine is not near that exciting. I was going to go into marketing and advertising. Uh, so I enrolled going to Harding, that was what my major was, at the, the very, very start of me being accepted. And there's something I really like about marketing. I love the creativity component, and I like the challenge of making people care about something that they really don't care about. <laughs> I guess that's another form of manipulation. Um, but manipulation is really what marketing is all about. I don't know if you've watched very many commercials critically lately, but if you watch them closely, many of them don't really do a good job of actually advertising what the product is or how you can buy it. They're really just trying to convey this emotion, this human connection with you to some degree. <clears throat> and oftentimes, those sorts of commercials are the ones that are the most memorable, 
for us, right? Those are the ones that stick in our mind the most. For example, I watched this Toyota commercial recently. Uh, this is a little picture of the, the woman who's in it. But it's this 30-second, I think, ad of a, dad, a dad's voicemail. And what's happening is he is talking about how proud he is of his daughter, how she's going to do awesome things in life, get back out there, because her dad had passed. And it's this really beautiful story, and it tugs at your heartstrings like, wow, that's so powerful. And the thing is, what are they actually advertising? <laughs> they, they have this truck that's in it, that's an old truck that her father had that he passed down to her, but they're not advertising like a new truck. What they're trying to do is attach that human connection there. Maybe they're communicating that their company is a family one or that their vehicles are reliable since the truck that her father had whenever she was young is the one that she is now driving. I don't, I don't know exactly what they're trying to communicate, but what they're doing is trying to make you have positive thought association with their brand. That if, if you want Toyota, if you want to have a, a strong family, if you want to pass on great things to your kids, buy a Toyota vehicle. That's what they're trying to convey, but they don't outright say that. Uh, Seth Godin, he's a marketing expert, best-selling author, that sort of guy. And he says, marketing is no longer about the stuff that you make, but about the stories you tell. And really, the best advertising companies realize this. It's not enough to say that Toyota is a good product. You must buy this product. It's not good enough to do that now. Toyota wants people to believe that if you care about your kids, if you care about taking care of future generations, you buy Toyota. Because deep down, something that is so crucial to the human experience that marketers understand is that of story and the power of storytelling. We as human beings love to construct stories for ourselves. We love to make narratives about ourselves. And that story could be, I'm the golden child. I should never make a mistake. It could be that I'm the cool one. I'm the different one. People should look at me and think that I'm impressive and think that I'm unique. It could be that I'm the leader. Everyone chooses to follow after me. It could be I'm the underdog. Nobody values me, I'm, I'm underappreciated. It could be that I'm a total mess or that I'm a failure, I'm not good enough. We can make these narratives about our lives all the time, believing certain things to be true about our story. And we need to be careful about what we believe is true about our lives because what we believe is true about who we are is going to dictate so much about who we become and it's really gonna drive a lot of our actions. But whenever you boil it down, Stories tend to follow two trajectories, one of insignificance or one of significance. Maybe the story you tell yourself is that you live a life of insignificance. And that can be from a lot of different ways. One could be the view that your story is insignificant could come from you having a very natural view of the world, thinking that all that there is in my life is this physical life, and then whenever I die, I go to nothingness, therefore none of my actions really matter, no one's actions really matter, and you see your life is insignificant. Your story being insignificant could come from the numbers in the world, how many people there are in this world. I'm just one person among billions. Why is there anything special about me? Maybe your view that your story is insignificant comes from an underappreciation of your own gift or your impact in this world. 
Maybe you think that my gifts, they're really not that helpful. They're not that important. And the things that I think I am good at, there's always somebody that's better than me at them. What place do I really have? And if you feel this way, know that you're not alone. I think all of us at different points in our lives, we think that our stories or our lives are insignificant, that our role in this life is unimportant. And this isn't anything new. We see this throughout history, and we see this all over in Scripture. If you look at Luke 1, we read the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were righteous people who were not able to have a kid, and they were well off into their older years of life. And Gabriel the angel then comes and tells Zechariah that they were going to have a son, and he was going to bring many people back to God and prepare the way for the Lord, much like Elijah, which this sort of thing being said over your kid is exactly what you'd want to hear as a parent, right? That your child is going to go on to do amazing and special and powerful things. But here's Zechariah's response in verse 18. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years, which is the polite way to refer to your wife's age. And though he had a point, because he didn't hear of people having kids whenever he was that old, right? Like, people around him weren't just pumping out babies, right? But he didn't believe these words, and because he didn't believe these words, he couldn't speak until John was born. Because of his age, he didn't think it was possible for God to work wonders through, for God to let a miracle happen. And there's a similar story here with Mary. Her and her husband-to-be, Joseph, they were from the line of David, the line of royalty, And at this time in the story, Mary was pretty young. It's thought that she was maybe around 15, like mid-teenage years, whenever she gets this revelation from the angel. But then Mary, or the angel appeared to Mary and said this, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary, upon hearing this really fascinating and and good and probably also terrifying news for someone in her stage of life, she asked, how will this be since I am a virgin? Which is a great question, because this sort of thing is impossible, right? And perhaps on top of this, she maybe had a hard time believing that such an honor could come through someone like her. We read in the Magnificat, which is a a song that she wrote that's really, really beautiful, and we're going to dive a little bit more into that next week. She says, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. In other words, he even cares about little old me. She did not see herself as that significant. And it's understandable because society at that time did not see her as very significant. I mean, she had two strikes against her. One, she was young. So being young, people just automatically overlooked you. And second, she was a woman. Women had hardly any rights in society at that time. Their testimony in court didn't even count because they were deceived. She was overlooked constantly in her life. But here's the beautiful thing. God saw her. God entrusted her with raising his own son. How powerful is that? And then Gabriel reassures to her that this great work will actually happen through the Spirit by sharing another seemingly possible situation as evidence. And it says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, 
And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, <clears throat> for nothing will be impossible with God. So he gives proof by saying, hey, Elizabeth also was probably thinking that this was impossible, and now look, the person who people labeled as barren is now going to have a child in three months. Nothing is impossible with God. Do we believe that? Church, do we believe that through God all things are possible? Do we believe that through God something great can come through every one of our lives? Something significant can come from me? Or do we believe the lie that Satan tries to put into our minds that our story is insignificant? That who we are is not important? Or that my story doesn't matter? That is exactly what Satan wants you to think, that your story doesn't matter. And this is a frequent and often heartbreaking story that we believe to be true about us, that there is nothing significant about my story. But hear what the upside-down kingdom changes. Let's turn our attention to everyone's favorite part of the Bible, or more accurately, everyone's favorite part of the Bible, to skip that of the genealogies. In Luke 3, Luke has his own genealogy, and it comes right after Christ's baptism. And Christ is baptized, or anointed, at age 30, like what David was, right before he starts his ministry. And immediately after this anointing, it goes into an account of Jesus' lineage. But why? Why would Luke go there after Jesus' baptism? Because as the opening verses of Luke illustrates, Luke is attempting to write an orderly, an accurate account of what's been going on in Jesus' life. And it's like, well, of course somebody who's trying to convince you is gonna say that at the first bit. Yes, understandable. But he is trying to provide evidence throughout the Gospel of Luke that supports Jesus being as who he says. And this is one of those areas. And what he's doing by tying in Jesus' lineage is showing how much more weight there is to this story, knowing that Jesus' story ties in to the greater story of God. Jesus is portrayed in Scripture and in Luke as the new David. He is the rightful king of Israel over all of Jacob's descendants, or in other words, over all of Israel, over all the world, as uh, the promise to Abraham is saying, all nations will be blessed through you. Jesus is the new Abraham. Jesus is also the new Adam, in that he is humanity done right. He is human 2.0. He is who we will be through the Spirit. And what makes this even more interesting is Luke's genealogy has 77, I'm not going to make you count all these, 77 names listed here. Now, if you know anything about Jewish symbols or numbers, seven is the number of completeness. So having 77, it's like, this is the perfect and beautiful story of God. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. But you know what? We never hear stories or sermons about like 80% of these people on this list. I don't know how well you can read that, but like when have you heard a story on Elmadam? Have you heard a sermon on him before? Or what about Shealtiel? Also, why are there no kids named that? I mean, it's biblical. It makes sense. Or Jodah, brother of Yoda. Where, why haven't we heard any stories about these people? It's, it's because... Well, there's not much in, in Scripture about them. But these people were significant. Significant enough to be in the lineage of Jesus. And though we don't really know what their story is, God does. It could be that El Madam 
He could have been fighting through a lifelong battle of seeking other people's approval. He could have lived a life that helped save many people during a time of famine and distress. But we don't know his story. It could be that Jodah, he overcame a period of wrestling with God after the sudden death of one of his children. We don't know their stories, but God does, and God will never forget them. And if in Matthew's genealogy, he includes five women in the lineage of Jesus, all of which have had the label of sexually promiscuous attached to them. And these people are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Even Mary, even the mother of God, because she became pregnant before her and Joseph were really together. She had to deal with that sort of stigma too. So though while the world looked at them with shame, God saw so much beauty and significance in them, and they are a part of God's masterful story. But are we? Are we a part of God's masterful story in a similar way to these individuals? Do we see ourselves as significant enough to be an impactful player in this story? While we may testify that we aren't good, we're not good enough, we don't matter, our story is insignificant, hear what God thinks here. Romans 8, this is one of my favorite places to always come back to, from the words of Paul inspired by the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Through the Spirit, we have been adopted into the family tree of Jesus. We can connect our lineage not by blood, but through the Spirit to that of Jesus and the work that he's been doing. We are connected to the greatest story ever told. We come from the same family as St. Felicitas and Perpetua. If you haven't heard their story, please go look it up after the sermon. But these two women, in the face of wild beasts, beasts and death, they were defiant to people who were oppressing them in the name of King Jesus. We are a part of the same family as St. Augustine and St. Aquinas, though I don't agree with everything that they've ever written, I can't deny the fact that they have impacted and shaped Christianity so much by the work that they've done. We come from the same family as St. Ignatius of Loyola, somebody who helped Christians grow closer to God through the spiritual disciplines and exercises he created, and he's also known as the father of spiritual direction. Sorry. We come from such a great family. And there, there are so many people that I can't even begin to talk about because we don't have time to, that if they were not a part of the picture, the church would be worse off for it. And those are just people we know. How many people do we not know that have made such a ridiculous impact on the kingdom with their bravery and their love for Jesus? We don't know their stories, but God does. Their story matters, and they are all a part of God's family. So church, maybe as we bear witness this morning that I'm not that significant. I don't have great gifts. I don't know how God's gonna use me. While we may testify these things about ourselves, the spirit of God is testifying on our behalf saying, no, you are a child of God. You are significant. Through the spirit, 
We are connected to this wonderful family and you have a part to play. Your part matters. And though you may be tempted to believe this, church, hear this. Your story matters. Your testimony of what God has done in your life, what God has delivered you from, is crucial. And it can help change the world. You don't have to be a best-selling Christian author to make that big of an impact. You don't have to have the gift of preaching. You don't have to have that story of, I had a meth lab, and then I had a vision, and then all of a sudden, I heard the voice of God, and I changed. And if you did have that story, praise God that God redeemed it. But no one person's story is more significant or less significant than another's. All of our stories matter. Do not believe the lie that your story doesn't matter. So do not hurt the world by keeping God's story of deliverance in your life quiet. Because it can change things. Your story is helping further God's greater story in the restoration of all things. The work that Jesus did 2,000 years ago is directly related to the good that you're putting into this world right now. We're carrying on the story of God and all of us have a chapter in it. We are building off the foundation of those laid before us. So do not overlook your story because though we are just one person in the grand scheme of things, somehow, some way, God sees us as significant. And that's what makes David say in Psalm 8, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. It's crazy for us to think about because we don't see it in ourselves, but God sees it in us. Our God sees so much significance in each of our stories, so do not believe the lie that your story doesn't matter. Even if you feel like up to this point in your life, you've wasted a lot of your life or you haven't had much of an impact in your life. Take the words of the great philosopher and singer Natasha Bedingfield to heart. Today is where your book begins. The rest is still unwritten. And now that is in your head. You're welcome. <laughs> but what's been true about your story in the past, church, doesn't have to stay true. Through the Spirit, you can overcome whatever hindrance, whatever obstacle, whatever addiction, whatever thing you're going through, you can get over that through the power of Jesus, through years of hard discipline, through years of community refinement and having support groups, through years of therapy, church, you can get through it. What's been true about you in the past doesn't have to stay true. We serve the God of the possible. Nothing is impossible for him. So let's be a church that shares our story with the world because the world needs to know that their story matters and that King Jesus can redeem it. You don't have to know all the arguments of how to debunk atheists. You don't have to be an expert in philosophy. My life wasn't changed by an expert theologian. My life was changed by a stay-at-home mother who said one of the most cliche things you could possibly ever hear. Kyle, maybe God has better plans for you. That altered the trajectory of my life. So don't overlook your impact, regardless of what situation you're in in your life. You can change the world. Your job as a disciple is to be present with people and to be able to share what God has done in your life, what God has helped you overcome. And there's a couple questions that I think can be really helpful in how to articulate your story to other people that really illustrate the power of God. Ask yourself this question, what has God delivered you from? 
Or what is God delivering you from? That's your story. That's the power of redemption. That's the power of Jesus' love in your life. Or another way to put it, if you have a hard time thinking of something for that one, who would you have been had God not stepped in? Had God not intervened in your life? That's another way to think about it that really can illustrate the transformative power that Jesus can have on your story. So don't keep your story quiet because the world needs to hear it. And this is why starting in the new year, we're gonna be trying to hear more from your stories. We're gonna try to hear more testimonies of what God has done in people's lives because that is where the power lies. It's amazing to hear what God can do. And we're gonna have more exactly on the details of what that's gonna look like, but I'm just gonna say, get excited. (laughs) Because I think we're gonna enter into a really beautiful season here at Fourth Avenue. So if Satan tries to remind you that your story is insignificant, that you don't matter, that you're just another person in the grand scheme of things, the upside down kingdom, what advent, what it tells us is that your story matters. And if your story wasn't a part of it, the kingdom would be worse off. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful and and thankful that you are a God that sees us as significant. (laughs) It's, that in itself is just fascinating that each person, the eight billion people on this planet have a special place in your heart. And all those who have gone before us have a special place in your heart. It's hard for me to even make sense of that. But you see us with dignity and you, you give us power. You give us the ability to overcome the evil that's in this world. And we are just so grateful. We're so grateful for you stepping into our story, for you changing who we would have been or who we could have been. But you, through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, are refining us to make us more and more Christ-like, making us more and more into the likeness and the image of Jesus. And we are forever grateful for your redemptive power to change a story that was looking like it was gonna be a nightmare and turn it into a masterpiece. We thank you so much, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen.